welcome to Making Tech Better, Made Tech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. On the 6th of January, I caught up with Paula Poole, who's a software consultant at Grayshore Associates. I've known Paula for a while. She was my mentor at ThoughtWorks. She has decades of experience. I don't know many software engineers who are more experienced or capable than Paula. She's particularly expert in the art of transformation and modernization, which is something we see a lot of in the public sector, and she loves talking about it. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Paula Paul on the topic of modernization and transformation, which is a topic that's very interesting to MadeTech. We've actually written a book about it, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector by Luke Morton, our CTO, and David Winter. I'll make sure that there is a link available to people listening to the podcast. So to Paula. Hello, Claire. Paula is a distinguished engineer with Grayshore Associates, where she works with organizations pursuing cloud adoption strategies and implementation. She's served this industry as a software engineer since the early 80s. She's had roles in product development, engineering management, consulting, as well as corporate IT executive roles. And she's led teams through several modernization efforts along the way. I'm very excited to have Paula with us. She's been my mentor since our time at ThoughtWorks. Every time we talk, I always learn something new. She's enormously experienced, particularly in the area of modernization. So this is going to be great. So Paula, distinguished engineer, is that your job title? It is. Fantastic. So I don't know that I've heard that exact job title before, but I think it probably is similar to the concept of principal engineer, which is one that gets used a lot in the UK. Is, is that basically the, the idea? I would believe so. And it was uh, my very first uh, job as a software engineer was with IBM and you would rise through the ranks and uh, the uh, highest uh, engineering rank was fellow. So it's also something like a fellow or principal engineer. So yes. Wonderful. But I mean, it basically does what it said on the tin. You are a distinguished engineer, which makes it even more exciting that I get to talk to you. But before we get to talk about modernization, I'd love to kick off by asking you, who in this industry are you inspired by? That is a great question. And actually, two people came to mind. I'll cheat a little. Um, My favorite architect is a lovely woman named Ruth Milan, who writes of all things architecture, decision-making, technology strategy, and hosts a number of workshops. So I love Ruth's writing. She's also uh, an award-winning architect. And then my second name that that came to mind is sort of foundational, Fred Brooks, the author of The Mythical Man Month. And if you really go back and read some of the writings, like No Silver Bullet, you see a lot of things in those writings that are kind of reinvented with different names today in the agile community. So I think that we've all been in the pursuit of software engineering excellence uh, for a long time now. Mm. Yeah, I, I I know both of those names. Ruth, I follow her on Twitter. She's I also find her to be enormously inspirational. So yeah, great choice. Okay, so what exactly is a modernization effort or project? 
I think that's a great question as well, because when I look back in time, everything that I've done in software engineering has been for modernization of something. So the core of modernization could just be automation or digitization. My very first job at IBM was moving people from mechanical drafting boards, you know, PEN and Mm T-square to CAD systems. And so that's modernization. When you do that, then you have to have a different way of storing and sending the drawings around. So we you know, put them in databases, which was different than filing cabinets. Where we run into challenges today is these large-scale modernization efforts that are more than just technology. Mm. And what would you say is the essence of modernization these days when people talk about modernization? What kind of thing are they doing? Well, we have a better way of doing things now or things that we had to spend a lot of effort on as individuals working at a company. We may be able to get as a a service software as a service from a, a cloud provider. So it still to me is about changing the way of working and adopting better ways of working, even from adopting something like uh, Agile, Safe Agile, or any other of the variants of Scaled Agile. Those are uh, modernization efforts in and of themselves. Yeah. I think we're all struggling with change management and maybe perhaps in more recent days, the rapid or more rapid pace of change. So you talked about making things easier for people. One of the obvious drivers for change might be to make processes quicker. So when companies are finding that they're spending a lot of people hours on a particular process, often the reason they modernize is because they want to reduce the amount of time spent on something. But that's not the only reason, is it? What other reasons are there? What other benefits might people get from modernization? It is related to change as a company grows. So we have a lot of modernization efforts spurred by the need to scale. At some point, some system that was originally designed for the amount of business that you might do when you were operating out of a small garage um, no longer supports the the scale that the company has grown to. And Mm. that's a big driver for a lot of the modernization efforts that I've been involved in most recently. Mm-hmm. Scale, yeah. Yeah, and scale is something that affects all organizations. The ability to scale elastically and serve a sudden influx of demand is one of the massive benefits, isn't it, of cloud technology? And also one of the big reasons for modernization is to to create that ability for elastic scale. Yeah, exactly. Using a lot of the same technologies that, you know, companies like Netflix and AWS, Amazon use for their, for their sales engine. So those are now available to any business as services and the move to adapt those kinds of services to run your own business at scale is is really one of the big drivers for modernization. And I suppose the other obvious one is cost. So, I mean, you know, you could say that people hours are a financial cost to businesses, but they're not just a financial cost. Uh, But there are other financial costs as well, aren't there, that that can be reduced via modernization efforts. Sure. A good example of that is uh, just take server patching. Mm. That's an an immense effort that as you grow and you add more servers, there's more cost. And at a certain point, it becomes worth looking at, do we really need to do this? Or should we move some of this to a cloud-based SaaS offering where they handle that? Yeah. And by patching, you mean upgrading smaller systems and making sure that everything's up to date. Yeah. And, And maybe fixing small bugs. 
keeping track of the operating system uh, patch levels when uh, security patches are issued by the vendors so that you're not operating in a vulnerable position, Mm -hmm. Uh, just all sorts of things that are not even about your own software. It's about the software just running on the servers as the operating system takes maintenance like a car. Yeah, yeah. So why was modernization the topic that you wanted to talk about when I invited you to be interviewed? Because it was your first suggestion and you were very excited about the opportunity. I think that my entire career has been about modernization and I find it fascinating that it's a a huge industry uh, phenomenon now. It's like if you look at the Gartners and all of the you know, the pundits talking in technology, it's about modernization. And really, isn't that what technology is for? Mm. To help people become more efficient, to help people become more scalable at what they're doing, to help them either offer more services at a broader scale, uh, less cost. So it's a it's novel to me that it's become such a buzzword and such a focus in the industry. I tend to think that it's about the rate of change and the much more easily accessible SaaS services available to us in the cloud. And that's that's a big driver, I believe. Mm, yeah. And I know that that's something that you're particularly experienced and an expert in. Uh, I mean, in, in your bio, in fact, it, you talk about working with organizations pursuing cloud adoption strategies and implementation. That's that's pretty much what you do, isn't it? Yes. Yes. I feel that I've gone from raised floors and then there was an era of... So, sorry, raised floor. What does that mean? That's a, that's a new one on me. Oh, so in a, a mainframe world, the raised floor was where you put your equipment and then underneath the floor, you would have all sorts of cabling and um, ductwork for the cooling and so forth. So raised floors is, that's I'm definitely showing my age here, uh, for, the, <laughs> for those that um, maybe have come from a mainframe frame background in their origins. That was where we kept the mainframes on the raised floor. And, you know, I then moved into the era of people would buy smaller computers and put them in server closets because that freed them from the raised floor. And then the server closets became messy and we put them in data centers. And now data centers have become cumbersome because there's a lot of maintenance involved in a data center. And it's like, oh, we'll just put that in a cloud, which is funny for me because the cloud is really almost like someone else's raised floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've come full circle. I, I was amazed recently. I don't know why I was amazed. It makes perfect sense. But my brain tends to be very literal. There is a part of my brain that thinks it's up there somewhere, that it is actually in the cloud. We don't use data centers anymore but of course somewhere there is actually physical hardware and the thing that I was amazed by was that I discovered it's in the seats because actually there is physical hardware somewhere and there's a lot of it and it's running hard and that creates heat so being in the sea is quite a good way of cooling it down blew my mind yeah I think it's fantastic it is it's all I, I feel as though a lot of modernization has for me always been about moving something somewhere so moving drawings from paper to CAD mm. And then moving uh, systems from raised floors to server closets, moving systems from server closets to data centers, consolidating data centers, mm. <laughs> you know, networking remote data centers together over a global reach. And then, of course, now it's moving from data centers to clouds. And then now even I've got um, polycloud, which is another sort of a buzzword of do you just leverage one uh, major cloud provider like AWS or do you have splits of your capabilities across multiple different 
different cloud providers and what does that mean? So it's it's just been a lot of moving things around for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So why? Why do we even need to modernize? There is always a driver or they wouldn't call a consultant. And the ones that I've seen lately are a couple of times now, a company has been either spun off or purchased by private equity. And that is an investment firm picks up the company, but their goal is to uh, sell that company again at a higher multiple of their revenue within a few years. And so one of the ways that you can demonstrate that the company is is worth paying for is whether they are a modern technology-based company. Uh, it's also much harder, I think, to sell a company that has a lot of sprawling data center assets because there's a lot of expense involved there. Is it always the right thing to do? Because I know that what can happen is that companies who are suffering from various problems, various malaises, can think that the answer is to replace everything. Yep. Make everything new and shiny and then all their problems will go away. <laughs> so when is it not the right answer? Right. Yeah. So I, I do believe that some companies do it when it's either not the right time or not the right reason and that they try to attack it with a technical solution. So yeah, if you are just doing it to say, hey, we're now operating in the cloud, that's probably not enough of a reason. Yeah. Okay, so when we talked about this prior to this official interview, uh, one of the things that came up was uh, the concept of there being two types of problem. There are technical problems and adaptive problems. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's one of the biggest barriers, I think, to successful digital transformation, if you want to use the industry words today. Uh, I think that a lot of times companies will hire a lot of very technical people and say, please move this to the cloud. You know, we, we need to scale, we need to save costs. But what is often overlooked is the amount of effort needed for the people involved in those activities. I always say that technology is the easy part and having the people think about their roles differently is, is quite complicated and that's an adaptive process. Mm -hmm. Technical problems tend to have a very uh, concrete solution. Adaptive problems require change of people and change of thinking. And you see like all these cloud native companies like Amazon and everybody's like, I want to be like Amazon. And it's like, well, if you have 20 years of operating your business or your service, say as a, a public service, there's a, a high touch, a high people component to it. And it's not just like becoming Amazon, it's rethinking your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what techniques do you use to help people to identify the adaptive problems they are and to find solutions to those problems or find ways of addressing the adaptive side of transformation? I start with the business or the service itself and coming to a common language about the activities that this business performs that either make them revenue or help them reach their goals. Like maybe it's the degree of service they provide or the number of people they touch. So there's some goal. Most of the time I do work a lot with for-profit companies. So their goal is revenue. And what are the things that they do that generate revenue? So it's not rocket science, but oftentimes it can be even a challenge to get 
people in an organization to agree on what their primary revenue streams are and arrive at common language around them. And I would suggest as well that when you're talking about revenue streams, you can kind of go to a slightly higher level of abstraction and say that what you're talking about is helping organizations to identify why they do what they do. Where does the value lie? So we tend to work with what we call public sector, which is not-for-profit organisations. And so it's not necessarily revenue that's that's their main driver, but we come up against the same problem, which is helping them to identify why they're doing what they're doing. And if you ask them, what is your ultimate goal? They struggle or they don't agree with one another. Different people within the organisation will have a different view. But as you say, we're often brought in at a point where if we try to have those conversations, our clients will get impatient and say, listen, just fix this problem. Stop talking to me about that stuff. That's just distracting and you're confusing me. Just fix this problem, which brings us right back to the technical versus adaptive. It's definitely a uh, an interesting position to be in as an engineer. Some days I'll, I'll close the laptop and it's like, goodness, I'm an engineer, not a psychiatrist. And (laughs) I've often joked that I wish I had taken more psychology and psychiatry when I was studying. So yeah, I do think that one of the um, most underused techniques is open-ended questioning with the intent to seek knowledge. And oftentimes I will just remind people that one of the least expensive things you can do is thought exercise, Mm. especially in this day of ease of access to compute. My goodness, access to compute is crazy. And so you have to go through this exercise of if you were starting this company again, you know, when you started it 20 years ago, there were probably just a few people and they had an idea and maybe they stood up a little server under a desk and they tried some things. And if you were going to do it again, what would you do now that you have this ease of access to storage and compute and networking and all of the great things you can do like machine learning? Because if you can get the people to open their minds to that, you find that a lot of the value in many of these companies is their 20 years of experience in the industry. Their value is not very often in their technology. Their value is in their experience and their insight. Mm. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about Made Tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm pretty choosy about who I'll work for, but there's lots to love about MadeTech. We're software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about MadeTech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the north of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about MadeTech. You'll find a link in the description. Before the break, we were talking about identifying technical problems as opposed to adaptive problems. 
Paula recommended asking, what if you started again from scratch? What value would you be generating? As a way of finding out where does your expertise and insight lie? So what are the most important principles to keep in mind when you're approaching modernization? I'll go back to value. I used to think it mattered where you started. And lately, I think it does not necessarily matter so much where you start, but that you have a way to move forward from the starting point. Otherwise, sometimes you'll make a start at a modernization and it will get reabsorbed back into old ways of working. I I call it reverse strangulation. Mm. So you're saying that reverse strangulation is a bad thing? I believe it is because you invest a lot of time and effort into moving one small piece forward into a new way of working or a new pattern, Uh, you know, more of a test-driven development pattern. But if the people involved don't change their ways of working, it can often be treated the same way as existing systems and fall back into the same problems of release cycles and, you know, slow change so again, it's technology plus people, I think, is, is a holistic solution. Yeah. And just for the benefit of people who haven't come across the concept of strangulation before, people talk about the strangler pattern. And I have a very visual um, image of that because I spoke at a conference in Valencia a couple of years ago where in the public parks, there are a couple of strangler vines and I've never seen them before. And they are bizarre. So basically what happens is this plant called the strangler vine will plant its seeds in the canopy of an existing mature tree. And it will then sink its roots into the trunk of the existing tree. I believe that's correct. And will grow in the existing tree and will gradually over time completely encase the original tree with itself, strangle the original tree and replace the original tree with the new thing. And the idea is that you you surround an old system with a new system and you gradually choke off the old system by, by putting the new system between the old system's clients and the old system so that eventually the old system can just die off and be replaced by the new one. That is a great example of what my career has been like for the past decade or two is, you know, inserting new ways of working, new technology, and then gradually strangling out the old. The other quote that I have used with a, a customer that became a favorite is F. Buckminster Fuller, in order to change something, build the thing that obsoletes it. You know, if you have a few people in a garage, what would they be doing to disrupt your industry right now? And it's often the case that the people you're working with could do that same thing. They just don't see themselves as working in a garage and doing something quickly to learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that it's much easier to sell value streams that can be generated purely in the cloud, like a, a Netflix, right? There, there would be an, an analogy for ease of scale, for ease of transfer. That would be relevant in the not-for-profit sector, particularly in large national organizations that are spawning. And that is a lot easier, isn't it, when, when things are in the cloud? Yep, transfer the subscriptions. And, yeah. You know, there's a little more to it than that, but those are interesting challenges for organizations today because many of the organizations I work with are vertically integrated. They manage their own data centers as well as provide products or services. And we have this opportunity now to say... Do we really need to manage all of our own compute or is that something that we really can leave to a managed provider really at a a large scale? So it's causing organizational change 
and just saying, let's put everything in the cloud doesn't always or rarely in my travels so far addresses all of those adaptive challenges. So um, the concept of lift and shift, that's something that um, is often seen that people, particularly when people have really complex systems, they've got a lot of different servers in a data center and they want to move to the cloud, but rather than changing the way that they work, they just take that configuration of servers and they just replicate it in the cloud. And that, that's what we mean by lift and shift. Just take the whole thing and just copy it. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about that? If you have an organization that wants to adopt cloud, I think at one end, there's just take everything I've got as it is and move it to virtual machines in the cloud. If you do that, you haven't really gained any efficiencies. And I would say that's not a really good reason to adopt the cloud. Mm -hmm. So at the other end is completely reinvent or reimagine everything with pure cloud native capabilities. That's another extreme, and many organizations don't have the luxury of doing that. Mm -hmm. So most of the efforts I've been involved in arrive somewhere in between. If you really get to the point that you can reduce like a co-location cost or a data center cost by just moving that system as it is from one server in a data center to a couple of virtual machines in the cloud, that's worth that cost-benefit analysis uh, and sometimes you'll get those tensions between the people involved, because if you lift and shift, you get to preserve more of your original ways of working. If you truly modernize and take full advantage of cloud native, there's more adaptive change involved. Mm, yeah. But it's interesting. So you talked about, you know, uh, completely reinventing and kind of effectively starting from scratch. And that sounds to me very much like what I would call the Big Bang. So it's equivalent to the idea that if you have a legacy code base that you're not happy with, rather than trying to change it, you just throw it away and replace it with something brand new. But the problem with the brand new thing is that it has to be developed from scratch. Mm. And that is uh, risky and, and costly and time consuming. So I know that in my experience, what we've often recommended to people is actually the Big Bang thing, because it is so risky, costly and time consuming, is not necessarily the thing that you want to do. And that's where we get into the strangler pattern. Replace your system piece by piece, yeah. make it iterative, make each change as low risk as possible. And then actually you'll probably have a better outcome and you'll have something that continues to function rather than having something that, that is limping on while you're waiting for its replacement. Yeah. <laughs> and then the replacement hasn't properly been tested because it hasn't been put in front of users. So, so actually the replacement won't necessarily work either. So how do you feel about that idea? You know, kind of the idea of avoiding the big bang. Exactly. In the context of lift and shift and, and moving to the cloud. Yeah, and I do. It's it's a terrific and really interesting topic because every client has this problem of how do you get to the new place? Mm -hmm. Big Bang is never good. It's very high risk, but there's also levels of strangle pattern. So you can use a strangle pattern in a, in a single code base and strangle out things from within that code base. There's also kind of a system level strangle pattern. So an example for me was a client that, uh, let's just say this client offers a service. And so this was one system, you know, scheduling eligibility and registration. And so we can say, what 
pieces of that process are kind of commodities these days, whereas you can go out to the market and get API-driven event scheduling systems. So can we take that piece or that module out and leverage an API-driven piece, Mm -hmm. but leave the piece that's unique to the business and maybe put some tests around it? And then, you know, kind of break things apart at a system level. Mm. If, you, if you say we're just lifting and shifting some things, that's almost like a strangle pattern for a data center. So I, I think you need to always take the big picture into account. Mm. And often I think that one of the reasons that people do tend to end up with a lift and shift when we're talking about moving to the cloud is because there are real constraints. You know, they have a data center provider which wants them to enter into a, you know, a long term contract and that contract is going to come to an end and they don't want to renew it. So they feel like they have to get everything out as quickly as possible and they don't have time to reinvent everything. So that's why you end up with the lift and shift. So what would you say to people who are in that situation? I've never met a vendor who would not negotiate a shorter extension. Mm. You will pay a higher fee on a per month basis for something like that. But if you look at the overall cost benefit of moving out of your data center, Versus that, you know, additional cost to get the shorter contract, Mm. you know, things are never totally this or that. It's yeah. Yeah. And the principle there is don't panic. So, um, you know, stop and think, are we really in that much of a rush? Um, Do we really need to move everything? What actually impact is it going to have if we don't think carefully about how we do this? And, and, And don't feel like you have to do it all at once. You can do it a bit at a time and that's more effective. And I suppose another thing you can do is not take everything. Mm-hmm. You can leave systems in what I call runoff. It just, you know, you maintain it until it's no longer valid. Yeah. And inevitably, you're going to have a ton of ancient little systems sitting around that actually nobody is using anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have seen a lot of companies struggle with, they'll hand me a spreadsheet of, you know, hundreds or even maybe thousands of small systems and they'll say, where do we start? Mm. I'm like, well, that spreadsheet is not where we start. I've lived in this house now like 20 years, and there's a little area of the house that's the closet that you never want to clean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I would never start by just looking at that closet and saying, where do yeah. I start? <laughs> yeah. And there's always, I have boxes full of cables and electronic equipment that I think is probably not needed anymore, but I'm not sure. So there's a concept you can use there where you say, right, I'm going to put it in a, in a box with tape over it and I'm going to give it a time period. You know, if nobody ever opens that box within five years then or 10 years or whatever, then then probably I don't need that stuff. OK, so what do you enjoy most about modernization and transformation? It's funny, you know, for as much as I say the technology is the easy part and the you know, people can be the hard part, I actually enjoy working with the people who help me serve the customers struggling through these endeavors. So I, I enjoy watching the team and supporting the team and these adventures. We, we are definitely on a lot of adventures. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I love that, that concept of adventure. Brilliant. <laughs> So uh, we're running out of time. So I've got this extra question that I'm asking people just for fun, really. Can you tell me one thing that's true about you and one thing that's untrue? Uh, True and untrue. Uh, I'll give you two things about myself. 
Uh, I spent two weeks in a convent uh, in the Netherlands learning the French language, and I have a third degree black belt. Wow, third degree black belt in, in which martial art? Taekwondo. Wow, okay. And you spent two weeks in a convent, did you say? In the Netherlands learning French. Learning French in the Netherlands, in a convent. <laughs> Why, why would you choose to go to a convent in the Netherlands in order to learn French? <laughs> I was sent on assignments in my early days. So one of the companies, I'll give you the hint, one of the companies I worked for uh, is named MapInfo. And in order for us to expand into Europe, uh, you may know that the, the digital map data in Europe, the government does not necessarily give it out for free. Mm-hmm. So I, I did uh, spend time in Europe uh, sourcing digital data at one point right. in my career. So. Okay. And how long did it take you to become a black belt in Taekwondo? Uh, about 10 years. Mm, okay. I can't tell which of those is true. But um, to end on a high, what is the best thing that happened to you this month? It can be either work-related or non-work-related. I gave myself a Christmas present late, so it, it is this year, and I, um, my youngest son is studying music and plays the bassoon uh, and is studying it professionally, and I actually enjoy music myself, and I bought uh, an English horn, and I'm learning to play the scales on the English horn. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I'm starting to turn a little bit into the Sherlock Holmes because I'll sit at my computer and I'll work, and then it's like I get stuck on something, and then I'll just walk over and I'll pick up the French horn and play a scale. So it's kind of like fantastic. Sherlock Holmes and the violin. Yeah, <laughs> nowhere near as good. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of the Sherlock Holmes connection, but one of the things that I've enjoyed about working from home is that there's a piano in the room below me. I'm, I'm in an attic when I'm working. And when I have a break, I just go and play the piano for a little yeah. bit. Isn't it great? And I've retaught myself a lot of pieces that I learned a long time. I hadn't really played the piano for years, even though we have one, but I've started playing frequently again. It's, yeah, uh, that's great. I call it a brain vacation because when mm. I'm doing that, I can't be thinking about anything else that I'm puzzling on. It's sort of like a little mm. uh, vacation for my mind. Lovely. But good for you. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the subject of a podcast some days. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me, Paula. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing is you and I have known each other for a few years now and we've never met in person. So we're used to doing this thing remotely. But I, I do very much look forward to the day when we finally meet because I know it will happen. <laughs> I, I do as well. And this has really been my pleasure. I always love to talk to you. We always have such great conversations. If you'd like to hear more of my ramblings on this topic and others, I do publish on Medium. The uh, URL is medium.com, whack, simply, dash, technology. And I'm looking forward to having more discussions with you, Claire, in the future. It's great to speak with you. As always, to help you digest what you've just heard, I'm going to attempt to summarise it. Paula's entire career has been about modernisation and transformation. It's changed over time, it's now a lot about moving into the cloud, but at its core, it's still the same. It's about adopting better ways of working, responding to scale and moving systems around. 
And what's always been true is that it's about technical problems versus adaptive problems. Technical problems have concrete solutions and adaptive problems involve changes of people and changes of thinking. You can find a starting point by asking what generates value for you. And then you can find a way of moving forward by asking how your ways of working need to change as well as how your technology needs to change. That way you can solve the technical problems and the adaptive problems. Instead of going for a big bang, try to use approaches such as the strangler pattern so that you can gradually introduce new ways of working and strangle out the old. I loved Paula's quote from F. Buckminster Fuller, in order to change something, build the thing that obsoletes it. When moving to the cloud, avoid lift and shift, negotiate with vendors for longer transitions from data centers so that you can truly modernize and take full advantage of cloud native approaches. And acknowledge that in order to do this, there will be more adaptive change involved. But you don't have to move everything. Watch out for that closet full of junk in the corner. Finally, I think my favorite takeaway from Paula is that change can be adventure. And the great thing about transformation is the satisfaction of helping people. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to Hack of the Month, where one of my colleagues and in the future our listeners too will share a life or a work hack. So this time we have with us Bella Cockrell, who is one of the engineers who's graduated from our academy programme. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having me. Um, my hack today is all about how to make notes. So when I was in uni, I studied English literature. And the way I made notes, it was that the professor would tell us about the subject and I would just write verbatim or as a stream of consciousness, everything that they were saying. And through the act of writing, all of this would sort of, uh, you know, meld into my psyche. I'd absorb it in that way. But coming into programming, I found that that wasn't really possible anymore because everything was new, everything had its own context, and I needed to do my own research um, in my own time afterwards. So I recently found that uh, the way I started to make notes has really helped me. So um, I'll give you an example. Recently, I was working on an unfamiliar part of a code base, totally new, so I had to understand it, but also it was really fiddly. So as the task was being explained to me, I made lots of handwritten notes. So this is what I was doing during uni. You know, I would write the notes, um, I'd absorb it. But then what I'd do, because it was more of a conversation, I would uh, check my understanding with my colleague. So if I'd written a note that I didn't fully understand when I was reading it over, I'd say, okay, I've written this. Does this make sense or is this correct? And they'd either say, yes, you understand that or no. Let me explain a bit further. While I was doing that, I was also taking screenshots and adding those to a separate file. And then when everything was done and I made sure that my understanding was correct, I decided to go away and then write up all of my notes. Now, this actually was the most important part of it, which I hadn't done before when I was studying literature at university. I wasn't really writing everything in my own words. Now, I found that if you wrote everything in your own words, you would be forced to, ex it's almost like you're trying to explain to someone who isn't there. It's like rubber ducking. You're trying to explain the problem in your own words. And then by teaching, you realize that you understand. 
So I would find that if someone has used a word in a context that I didn't fully understand, I would then check my notes and then reply back to them and say, is this what you mean? And then if it is what they mean, that's great. But if it wasn't, then I would add in the new definition or somehow try and check that both of our understanding was in the right place. I found that like my notes were a living proof of actually I am learning and there is progress. You know, it's my progress. It might not be the fastest progress available, but progress is what matters. And I can just see, oh yeah, you know, this time last week, I didn't know anything about this or that. So yeah, uh, that's my tip for today. <laughs> Make notes. They're really helpful. Working in the public sector means that at MedTech we really care about making a difference. So for this final Making Life Better segment, myself and my colleagues will be sharing suggestions for small things we can do to make the world a better place. This time the suggestion comes from me. It's something I've been doing for 20 years or more now and I've almost certainly saved some lives. As of March 2021, I have donated blood 35 times. There was a gap for a few years when I had my children. You can stop and start at any time and not everyone is able to do it, but it is worth checking if you don't know. I'm quoting from their website right now and they're saying, we are facing extra challenges to provide hospitals with the blood, plasma and platelets that they need. Donation is allowed despite COVID, it's as safe as it's ever been. And I've donated more than once since the pandemic started. They're so nice to you. It's so easy to do. I don't like needles, but I just look away and it's only a pinprick and then that's it. They even give you free biscuits and it feels so good to have made a difference. If you think that you might be able to give blood, you can go to my.blood.co.uk slash pre-register and I highly recommend it. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery with E-R-Y at the end. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's Making T-E-C-H-B-E-T-T 2. Do come and say hello, give us your feedback, give us any contributions you have for future episodes or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.